Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2018, volume 56, number 12. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, a DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month looks at uh, licensing of medicines and in particular the issue of conditional approval of medicines. Do you want to say a bit about this one? Yeah, this is just really to highlight that there is this conditional market authorization which has been developed over the last 10 plus years by the European Medicines Agency. And it's a way of getting drugs that are important to market, if you like, where perhaps they may lack some of the body of evidence required normally for get, getting your drug licensed. And we just really talk about the issues, particularly about the information that we get as clinicians and patients get about this. So we've looked at, and indeed we published an article last year on these sort of accelerated approval processes for getting medicines to patients quicker. And we highlighted that the conditional approval process was one that is available for particularly rare conditions um, and drugs that may not otherwise not make it to a market. So what is it about this particular approval that bothers us? What I think has bothered us is that actually it's very difficult to find out when you're taking these drugs if they are ones that have got this conditional market authorization. So, uh, for example, when we were actually looking through, we actually discovered there was one particular drug that didn't even have this information on the patient leaflet. So it's often buried away. And I think it's important that patients and clinicians both understand that these drugs are under particular scrutiny, if you like, their licensing is provisional and we need to be very much more sensitive to any complications that might arise. So the licensing process for all drugs has to take into account well, the quality of the manufacturing but also that balance of harms and, and benefits. Now that still applies, but it's based on a much earlier data set than perhaps other drugs? That's right, and, and, and interestingly enough, there have been about 30 similar applications over the last 10 years for conditional market authorization and 11 have been converted into standard market authorization two were withdrawn but 17 still have this conditional authorization overhanging them so these may be studies that were started whilst the drug was being licensed and the EMA might have said right well we're going to give give you conditional market authorization until such time as that study has been published and then perhaps here we are perhaps at least four years down the line for some of these drugs and yet no, no further information has been given. But there's nothing when you open your BNF, you look at the uh, summary of product characteristics or even the patient information leaflet to jump out and say this is a different approval process. It's not up front at the top of the document, it's buried somewhere in the small print. That's right and I think we get sometimes confused with black triangle down which is a different thing and and this so they are different and very often of course the drugs have both but actually on this is a different issue and often that isn't possible to find in the body of the SPC or in the pills and perhaps as a patient or even a prescriber I would want to know that just so I can inform my decision making about whether I want to use or take this medicine precisely okay thank you very much and our first main article this month, and not unrelated perhaps to the editorial, talks about information available to patients, so particularly official sources of information that help patients decide about medicine. So, so what do we cover in this one? So this is uh, a really useful article by uh, Prof. Thea Rayner, 
about the written information patients get. And he talks about the history behind patient information, how this actually was an EU initiative to put patient information leaflets into drug packs way back in the 1990s. It became mandatory in 1999. And since 2005, in addition to that, there's a plan that actually this information should be tested with a patient panel to make sure that it's effective and readable. And I think what the article talks about, how there's been a shift away from these information leaflets simply telling you how to take your medication through the safety issues to really the idea that they should be informing the patient and allowing them to make an informed decision about why they're taking their medication. So we talk about that. We talk about, say, the patient information leaflet, but also the online information that the NHS has produced since 2017. And there's some useful issues around there about where you can get hold of copies of patient information leaflets and any patient alert cards that are available online as well. Um, And what also struck me was there's a bit of a review of the evidence of the effectiveness of this, but also the question of what is the outcome that we want from this? Do we want to ensure adherence or actually is improving people's knowledge and decision-making actually what we're about? Absolutely, and I think that's the fascinating bit of this was that actually a lot of professionals think these leaflets are there to improve adherence. They don't do that because, of course, if you're empowered as a patient, you may choose not to adhere to your clinician's advice. And that's entirely reasonable outcome, but it doesn't actually mean you've adhered. OK, thank you very much. And our final article is a case review. What's this one? Yeah, so this is a case review about a case of interstitial lung disease in a 52-year-old man with ankylosing spondylitis who was being treated with adalimumab. And what's interesting about this is that this case report, and I do like case reports because of the other background information to this. So this is a a chap who was on lots of medication, polypharmacy. He'd been falling over a lot. He was on morphine, gabapentin, anticholinergics, and he was admitted to A&E with breathlessness. And the outcome was that this man had interstitial lung disease. They stopped his tumor necrosing factor, his adalimumab, and it got better. But it was, it, it's, it's really interesting. It, it highlights the whole issues around disease-modifying drugs for patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other connective tissue disorders. It reminds us all that even methotrexate use is associated with lung disease. And it's just a very useful review of those patients we have who've got comorbidity, lots of medication, develop new symptoms, you know, just think about the drug. And for adalumo itself, which is about to become available as a biosimilar, as almost a generic, then there's likely to be more renewed interest in its use and perhaps increased use. Absolutely. And and the case report does suggest that there's an association about up to 3% of patients taking adalumumab may develop interstitial lung disease. So this may be a condition. So breathlessness in this group of patients think lung disease. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. 